Hi everybody, uh, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast and I'm pleased to say that I'm in the rather f- fancy and yet not fancy, fancy yet ill-appointed <laughs> Central London offices of John Ellis. John, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm fine. It's a lovely sunny day here in London in February. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all we can ever hope for. Right? Yeah, there's no pictures on there. That's right, but it's true what he says. Do you know when I lived in New York, one February day, it was 83 degrees Fahrenheit, and it had snowed for days, and there was ice everywhere. So I went out for my morning run, all dressed up. By the time I'd gone about 50 paces, I realised this is a very big mistake. I went back and changed into shorts and a t-shirt, running through ice that was melting. Everybody else had gone out for walks, all rugged up, looking incredibly angry at me and envious. So anyway, but this is not quite that warm, but it's not a bad day. Now, John, we're here in, this is Royal Holloway University mm-hmm. in its central incarnation, I guess, where you're a faculty member. Are you here, here at this office working on something in particular at the moment? Are you teaching, researching, producing? What's the current I, theme for you? Well, I do, I do both. I teach at the main campus, which is out near Heathrow at Egham. Mm-hmm. I teach a, a master's called International Television Industries, mm-hmm. and what I do mainly up at this office is I run a big research project on the history of television technologies, mm. which is called ADAPT, funded by the European Research Council, employs sort of five people, and we're attempting to tell the story of how technology worked, particularly in the days of analog television, because mm-hmm. one of my main um, concerns is that um, we're, we're moving very fast into a period when, when uh, moving image and sound are mm-hmm. going to be as easily used and as central to formal discourse as writing now mm-hmm. is. So things are shifting very fast. I, I always thought this would come eventually, but I never thought it would be coming in my lifetime. It seems <laughs> to be happening. And that means that the whole kind of heritage of the audiovisual mm-hmm. has got a, um, a profoundly, it has a huge potential, but also a problematic status, mm-hmm. because um, most of it's analog, most of it's generated um, for particular uses and generated using um, particular kinds of technologies that people no longer understand. And so its status as data because all audiovisual material will be seen as data mm-hmm. and not stories if it's going to be used for research in the future. Um, this data, you need, really need to see how it's derived. You need to know how it's derived to know what its value and potential is. And that's really, in a small way, what I'm trying to contribute wow. to, is yeah. by um, trying to work out what, what the dominant technology is, what the everyday technology it's not about in it's not about invention and innovation so much as what people did day to day when they were making television programs when they were filming and so on so so it's from a production angle it's it is entirely from a production angle yes it's not about consumer technology it's not right. about the tv sets right. that people and, use and this is from an era when because they thought they weren't making art they didn't they just wiped tapes and reused them well, the, the, no. there's, there's rather a lot that, you know, that, yes, that up to a point that happened, but still mm. there's an awful lot left. Right. <laughs> there is an awful lot left from that period because uh, an awful lot was shot on, on film, a lot survived, people are finding it again and so on. 
And so, um, yes, they, they wiped stuff because the tapes were expensive. But, but what we're looking at is not so much that. It's actually mm. what people did, how people made the stuff mm. that is extant. Mm. And one of the key things we're doing is we're doing some filming ourselves, which is proving, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a nice idea when I had it, and now I curse myself. <laughs> the, idea, the idea is that we um, reunite retired technology with the people who used to use it. Beautiful. And we asked them, can you show us how this worked? Yeah. What did it do? And then, because we're going to reunite groups of people, actually, how did you work together? Can you show us how you would set this up? Can you show us what the problems were between sound and, and picture or whatever it was? Um, and that's easy to say and extremely hard to do. Because they're dying and they hate one another? No, um, they aren't dying, and, and they know each other quite well still, you know. Um, it's not so much that, it's actually, well, how do you arrange that as a shoot, you know? How do you make sure that what they say is comprehensible? Because you bring a group of old professionals together, mm. they lapse into their language. Now, part of the reason is, is actually to see how that works, you know. See the patterns of deference, see... Um, who, who, who takes the position of authority, see what the pecking order is between the different technical areas and so on. Okay, but please explain yourself. Acronyms all the time. But also yeah. what we're doing, of course, is we're, we're getting at the things which are non-verbal. Yeah. Which is mm -hmm. what is what, what dancers call muscle memory, what, what, what people kind of hold, you know, have in their hands as soon as it's... So we had, for instance, um, the first one we did um, was simply, how do you edit 16mm film using a Steenbeck? Mm -hmm. Not a Steinbeck, like everybody thinks. It's actually a Steenbeck. Um, so we got two editors together, one who'd been the assistant the other to start off with, and has since had a very successful career herself. Um, and they simply did things like demonstrated how a cut worked, you know, mm -hmm. and their hands moved so fast. Wow. So we had a, a GoPro camera in, in set above the, the flat deck of the steam deck, so we could see actually how they were working. Um, and these guys are in their 70s and they're moving like well, this. Well, actually, well, but film editing has not, not been old for very long, if you see what I mean. And so um, Dawn, who, who's the editor, she is, uh, you know, until recently the lead editor on Country File, and she's now doing some drama for BBC, so she's still actively working. Um, she started um, in the uh, early 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so it, you're still looking at people who, who are um, probably, possibly working. We're going to try next time to do a, um, a shoot about 16mm filmmaking mm -hmm. um, in the 1960s, and then we are dealing with people who, who are in their late 70s and 80s mm -hmm. and so on. But we should, that's why we're prioritising it. Yeah. Then, then after that, probably we'll go and look at electronic image making, and uh, that is fraught with even more because machines, you know, nice analog machines, the film clicks through, you can always kind of get it to work, but the electronics is hard. <laughs> you know? That's the difference between a, an old car and a computer. Really. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that whole there's the whole debate about um, history of technology and so on going on and, and something being invented called media archaeology, which um, in its worst aspects is, is kind of know-nothing academics tinkering with old machines to see what they might do. 
So, I mean, it, it cuts out all, all what interests me, which is the social, which is mm. how, how people work mm. together. Because, you know, the value, I think, for, for, for me mm. of doing this project is that it'll provide context and explanatory framework. So in a sense, um, it's about a labour process. It's about a, it's about a labour process. Yes, it, it's also about physical skills. It's about the interpersonal, mm. and and increasingly, um, I'm sort of coming back again to, to the to work I did um, on documentary just recently, which was looking at documentary as being very much an interpersonal exchange using technologies, and so um, you you look at documentary and. Um, um, it's a very complex play of power that goes on in something like this, an interview. <laughs> because um, as soon as you get a film interview, you've got people who are standing there listening, which you don't normally get in life at all. But you also get uh, other strange moments, such as when the sound man clips the microphone on you, which is a kind of physical invasion. So there's a lot of kind of um, etiquettes around, and that stretches into the, all the etiquettes and behaviours around how you should behave in an interview, how you ask questions, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at that sort of interpersonal stuff, and, and a lot of it plays off in, in this general um, approach to technology, because, well, the project is called ADAPT, because people adapted to machines, and the machines adapted to the people. And the people adapted the machines. In terms of changes over time, are you seeing a gendered change over time, for example, across the technology in terms of more or fewer opportunities for women in these technological artistic areas? Well, up to a point. I mean, there, there, there are other, um, uh, there's an interesting project at the University of Newcastle which is actually tracing um, women's employment in, in, well, mainly in the film industry by going back through the applications for membership for the union, and if you wanted to work in film and TV for a period of time until Thatcher got rid of it, you, you, you had to join the union. Um, what we now call BECTU? BECTU, yes, yeah. it was ACTT back in, yeah. back in the day yeah. when I joined it, or tried to join it, um, because they wouldn't have me, because there was somebody else called John Ellis who defaulted on payment to people. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it was the same bloke. Um, so anyway, the, the um, employment of women is not something that um, we would major on, but one of the great things about this approach using um, filming to gather data mm. is you get a lot of data on that. Mm. Um, already, um, the, the, the kind of cutting room male-female exchanges that we've captured are exactly kind of, you know, People just dropping back into the way they behaved 30 years ago is quite extraordinary. Um, and what we aim to do with this project is simply to make all the rushes available, um, as well as sort of little kind of three or four minute explanatory mm -hmm. sequences, mm -hmm. which will be highly edited. So we'll provide both. Great. And so that means that that you know we'll probably be quoting some of this stuff in in what we write because it's an um, obvious thing to do. Um, so we're collecting a lot of stuff, yes. Um, but our main um, emphasis has to be on the 
technologies that were in everyday use right. and how people used them and what routines they right, got into. Right. And is colour a big moment of epistemological change? Epistemological change as in you know, everyday consciousness and activity? Well, I've just had a color. very difficult conversation with a guy who's a, who's a basically, he's a, he's a um, um, electronics guy um, who has got a big collection uh, of broadcast material. Now, he takes what you would call an engineering perspective and what he would call an engineering perspective against the archetypes. And so, um, for them, indeed, colour is a huge break. Um, I think it's not quite the break on the, as it were, creative side. Um, colour of the tie for the newsreader, though? Uh, well, all of those issues are um, there, but, but, you know, black and white television, they weren't dressed in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a way, what, what you know, what you sh there were things you had to be careful of, particularly um, when you were using um, early video. It was very bright. It had, had you know had a particular kind of range, and you um, um, had to be careful what you did in terms of colour um, sometimes. But also, um, there was a huge demand that colour should be as colourful as possible. <laughs> So there was a kind of transient thing that took place, you know, the kind of, oh, look, it's in colour kind of moment. Um, but the real freedom, I think, is comes when, when, when nobody thought they had to deal with grayscale anymore. Mm -hmm. But actually, yeah. when, they, when the moment tips over and enough people got television sets to say, well, actually, we don't have to worry about people who are watching it in black and white now because they're a minority of the audience. And by that time, the colour technology, people got well used to it. So there's more of it's it's a real break for engineering, but it's more of an evolution mm -hmm. on the creative side, I think. And do you think that was why you had a difficult conversation with this guy? Yeah, I, he, well, he wanted me to tell you know because there is a huge um, story of um, technological development of competition between companies, of um, power struggles between companies, of um, the way that the BBC behaved in, in what you would now call its market dominance in setting the technological agenda for television in this country. Um, there's all of that. And mm. that's not the story that I am equipped to tell, neither is it the story I've got enough funding to yeah, tell. And he's a bit cross about that. <laughs> so he wants institutions. Now he, want, he, wants, he, wants, he wants the story of technological innovation in the sense of the development of systems. Yeah, yeah. And, and you want the, the real lived experience of the people. I want the lived experience of actually acquiring footage using yeah. this. You know, so, so I'm not terribly interested how it came about, mm -hmm. um, except insofar as any piece of technology defines what can easily be done with it. Mm -hmm. um, and that is really, you know, especially when you're using technology to get results quickly or to get runs of results live, um, you go with the flow of that technology yeah. most of the time, and that's what television did. So up to that point, yeah, I'm interested in it from that point of view. But um, not who invented what and, and sure. Marconi versus EMI versus BBC. Um, I don't think we can cover that story, but 
we will need to say, having said that, why and how particular kind of um, combinations of equipment were used, became the standard thing, and um, were widely adopted by particular organizations. Well, I mean, there's a story with Thames Television using a digital um, uh, video format called D2 that nobody else used. How did that come about? Why did they do it? And well, when did they say, we've got to go with everybody else? rather than saying we're sticking with this because it's better. Yeah, and of course it, all of those things have implications for how people retrain themselves Absolutely. to keep up with new yeah. technologies, which is a big story today. Well, it, it was a big story, we try and tell that story through um, the uh, quite rapid shift from film editing to digital editing, to non from linear in other words, to yeah. non-linear. And are, do people talk at all about when British television, because that's the country mm. we're really talking about here, is looking to foreign series a lot, whether it's you know Lou Grade uh, or anything else. Um, when programs are being made in color here, yeah. although color television is not yet present here, when they're being made essentially for NTSC in the United States. Yeah, um, but that that story is already quite well researched because you look at uh, work on the Avengers, you know, mm. season one in, in, in black and white, season two in in, in color. The whole story of Lou Grade, you know, people have, have researched that, um, um, and indeed his whole decision to make on film is is a make early things in, in UK terms like Robin Hood make them on film precisely because they were made for export export to the United States by a lot of Hollywood Blackwood development. That's what. So sport is actually quite an interesting Sport's thing. Sport's a big driver for, 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 yes, absolutely. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, speaking of technology, we just lost a bit there, John. Oh. We had an epistemological break, for which I apologise, probably only about a minute, but oh, these things happen. The uh, software I use is GarageBand, yeah. and the latest version, it's an Apple yeah. Rock Studio so software package, the latest version has decided that podcasts are no longer acceptable oh, and doesn't allow for them. So I've got to use all So it's 15 minutes and you're out, is that? <laughs> exactly. It's, well, it's a sort of rock opera. That what happened to the album? Just, you know? Yeah, right, well, exactly. No, it's all gone. Um, so given that, I, I don't know why I keep asking this, but somehow mm. it's interesting me. Are you finding epistemological ruptures that people are describing organically? Like the one I suggested that you're saying doesn't really apply mm. with the coming of colour. Well, it does. It does. It applies. I, I think you find breaks in 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 particular practices and areas mm -hmm. um, all the time. But kind of, yeah, and this is kind of you know old Marxism really. But to find all of, all of, it all lives, of, it breathes, <laughs> it kicks and squeals. I, I knew said that. Um, <laughs> to find all your breaks lining up at the same point. <laughs> That's revolution, but you know they, they don't all line up at the same point. You know, so um, it's an evolution. Color is an evolution for program makers. It's not for the people developing the technology. Um, and indeed, you know, so but looked at on another plane. Of course, it wasn't evolution in terms of analog television technology. Whereas, you know, the, the huge break in terms of technology is when people stop using analog mm. when you stop having cameras with tubes 
when you stop having linear tape, when you start, when you work, when you move into a completely different notion of electronics. Does that happen quickly in the UK? Um, no, not at all. It doesn't. It really, well, again, you know, um, it's really taken about ten years in terms of cameras. Um, uh, it happened in sound before it happened in image, for example. Um, it happened. I, I remember doing. You know, it happened in in amateur before professional. You know, so it's, it's, it's a very kind of ragged and complicated story if you want to tell that story. Mm. I mean, I, I remember the first digital image, moving image camera you could get hold of, was made for, um, was a digital eight camera, was made, made for the amateur market. Mm. Um, it recorded sound and image digitally. A lot of them were bought by the music industry because it was their access to cheap digital sound. We used it for doing a... Um, the last major production I did, which was a series about um, Hong Kong and the run-up to the handover, and that's 1997. So there we were, beginning of 1996, filming with a digital camera, not knowing what we were going to be able to do with the footage in post-production, if anything, but mm. we took the risk. So it, it, it's interesting, it's almost led by the popular market of amateurism, and then some professionals like your outfit I start think, doing it? Well, yeah. Um, well, it, it wasn't up to broadcast standard, and that time standard setting was a major thing. So there was no point in them releasing their best efforts in in early '96 uh, onto a professional market. It would simply turn its back on it. Um, but there was a lot of money to be made out of something far better than VHS in the amateur market. I must say, too. Right. So. This is an extraordinarily interesting project that you are undertaking. When is it likely to start producing things we can see, or is it already doing so? Well, the, the, the decision that, that, that we've taken is that we won't kind of build our own website that becomes, you know, like one of those... You um, just add things on. Family mausoleum sitting in a cemetery, <laughs> kind of falling derelict and, and general embarrassment. Um, we're going to try and distribute the content as, as much as possible. So we've got to have quite a lot to, to show so that we can go to archives and say, you know, here's something you can use to contextualize what you're offering online now and things like that. So we're going a bit down that route. And um, we hope that by the time we get there that there'll be some kind of um, public service, um, public space project that will be able to archive a large amount of or something like Wikimedia probably is going to be able to do it, which means we can put all of our rushes into there and say, because it's all done under Creative Commons license anyway, so people can do with it what they want. It's, right. it's data. Right. Yeah. So um, at the moment, there, there's, there's not a lot to show. In probably about six months, there will be. And we're speaking, as John said, in February, which is February 2015, so maybe in Towards the end of the fall. Yeah, yeah. The winter of this. I do hope so. Win winter of 2015, we really should have stuff to show because we've been working on it for many years. It's much, much too late. And will you be writing it up? Yeah, there's, there's conventional writing involved. Yeah. There has to be. Well, it's also nice if there's a framework that yes. people can reflect upon yes. that mm. is enriched by, and one hopes also, <laughs> frankly, 
enriches the image in Yes, I mean, we did say we'd write a, a sort of general history of, of, of technology and television. That seems now, you know, the more you find out, the less possible that seems. But Is it, in a sense, a history from below? It, it's a, it is a bit a history from below. It, um, it's a history of the everyday. That's mm -hmm. what I would say. Mm -hmm. um, because television was, you know, in the analogue era, television was an elite operation. You know, when you say history from below, I'd be a bit kind of questioning whether anybody I understand. involved but conventional, in institutional, yeah. technological, political, economic histories yeah. talk in the way that you mm. were distancing yourself from earlier. Yes. X owned Y. Yeah. This was the law. Mm. These were the widgets and so on. Well, it, it is... It's related to content, not structure. So yeah. it is about how did this stuff come about? Mm. And we, we do have quite a lot of, from at least, you know, from my experience working in television, not terribly accurate historical accounts of how programs came about institutionally. Um, but not many which are about how actually got shot, how they got edited. I guess there are some... How they got from the... Academic participant mm. observation or ethnographic yeah. studies, yeah. generally, not surprisingly, of factual or fictional material that turned out to be flops. <laughs> because well, that's, how that's do you, the draw, if you, know, you get in at the ground level, how are you yeah. going to know? Yeah. <laughs> so, John, we're about halfway through yeah. our time together, and I really appreciate the mm. offer you've made to, to be available at this mm. time. I'd like to go back, back, back a bit, if we could. Yeah. Because you mentioned a few moments ago that it was in the mid to late 90s that you made your last TV program mm. yeah. or series. Uh, you were a producer for, I don't know, 10, 15 years, is that right? It was the best part of 20 years. 20? It started in, well, it went from 1982 with the beginnings of Channel 4, which is how I got into it. Mm. Um, um, and the last program went out in um, 1998. So, and what was it like moving in and then out of that world and occupying it? Well, to be honest, I, mean, I, I, I was an academic first, so, so to, to, a, to a certain degree I felt like a participant observer. Um, I did get quite involved with the politics of, of the whole thing as well. And I was, I was um, deputy chair of the um, Trade Association, in fact, Producers Trade Association. Involved in the lobbies for independent access to um, broadcasters other than BBC, which was um, something going on in the eighties and nineties. Um, and uh, I kind of, you know, I never quite knew how to play the game. It felt like that. Um, and I always thought, well, you know, you can always go back. You know, you can always go back. And you know, it's bloody difficult. <laughs> <laughs> To have written a book, sort of the best part of 20 years ago, about television that, that people were still using, indeed on courses that I was trying to get in to teach, was not as simple as I had thought, because uh, academia had moved on quite substantially. That's interesting. Let's for a moment go back to the producing. Could you talk a little bit about some of the programmes you made? I uh, started with um, um, two people who actually did know what they were doing, Simon Hartog and Keith Griffiths, who mm -hmm. got production experience, a lot of it. 
to make um, a series about cinema, about world cinema, for Channel 4 when it opened. So this was going to be as unlike anything on TV about cinema up to that point. So it was, it did address what people were actually able to, to see in their um, cinemas and a lot of stuff that they couldn't. So it was really a wild mix between just getting um, intellectuals to talk about um, the latest releases. So we had um, um, Angela Carter talking about um, Draftsman's Contract in our first um, program, just a piece of camera, really, with, with clips, um, to um, um, special documentaries on the history of cinema in China, for example. Um, we did, we got critics um, like Peter Wallen and Chris Pettit so on to do um, montages from the month's new releases. That was when we went to a monthly schedule. Um, some of which are really nice, kind of, sort of ten-minute essays. Mm. Um, so we did all sorts of wild stuff. Um, we gave various interesting filmmakers twenty thousand pounds to go off and come back with a with a film. Um, did that with Chantal Ackerman, Mark Carlin, and so on. Um, and produced really nice essays. Um, so we did all sorts of wacky stuff, really. Um, we did a, a studio drama about um, legislation on the British film industry, trying to make that interesting. I was going to say that's going to try to make that into a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well inherently it's, it's a comedy. Elements, but yes. there we are. Um, uh, so you know, we we did all sorts of stuff, and that went on for the best part of three years. Actually, mm -hmm. we got. Um, um, We did one um, where we put um, Sally Potter with um, the filmmaker Wendy Toy, uh, a woman director who did Catherine Things in the 1950s. Um, they had one amazing thing in common which made it work, they both trained dancers. So there's a kind of immediate sort of um, rapport. Um, Sore feet. Not so. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, much more in an approach to performance. Um, and an approach to the rhythm of, of filmmaking and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of, sort of talked about how different and how similar their experiences in the film industry were. Because Wendy Toy was worked for, for, for Alexander Corder. Oh my God. Yes. So that was, we did, we did that kind of stuff. Great. Is um, that archived anywhere? It all, all sits in the National Film Archive. Um, I. You know, one of these days when I'm retired, I suppose I'll bung it all up on YouTube, you know, these hour-long shows. There's lots of underlying rights, so if you propose to ignore that everything is done for the film clips that belong to somebody else, it'll be all right. And so you did that for three years, yeah. bringing together lots of interesting people. That's right. And then um, sort of branched out and did um, some series about, well, you know, whatever we could pitch successfully. Um, did arts programming. Um, Simon Hartog did a wonderful hour and a half documentary about um, TV Globo and its power in, in Brazil, which that is on YouTube, that one, um, and was a political consulate who, um, at the end of the right wing era in Brazil. Um, 
Because the dictatorship ends in 85. Yes, and it's after that. It's, it's all about the continuity between, <laughs> in media terms, between the dictatorship and the right-wing governments and politics. Well, global. And how, how the first, you know, Lula almost won an election and, and Globalist swung it the wrong way and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and I did something much lighter, which was about the making of whiskey galore in, in, in Scotland. <laughs> um, and we did a, I did a four half hour series called This Food Business, which um, got uh, Best Food Programme on TV award for, um, what was then Glenn Fiddick Award, uh, which was Derek Cooper going into all the kind of scandals in industrial food production. Um, did Angela Carter's last thing, um, which was a half hour piece called The Holy Family Album, looking at religious art through the um, device that actually, if this was a family album, who's taking the photographs? It is God. And if so, why does he do this to his son? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, um, and I ended up doing um, this documentary series, actually two series, about Hong Kong before and after the Hanover right, right. which was done by um, Hong Kong film based filmmakers. I just was the man in London. So, why did you get out of the game after such a long time? Well, the game got out of me. Um, <laughs> I think there were two things going on. First of all, um, it had been very difficult in the mid-90s when Simon Hartog, who was then running the company with me, was ill for a long time and died. It was also the time when um, a lot of small production companies were merging. It was the first wave of mergers in, in, in the independent sector. And I kind of got left out of that for all sorts of reasons. And um, it was simply becoming a less interesting business from my point of view, harder to pitch, and less control once you'd actually got a successful production. It, it was becoming, you know, the, the, the kind of artisan era of television mm -hmm. that, that Channel 4 had started off with was ending. There was a lot more television about, and television had become much more industrial, and I couldn't adapt to that change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you, thank you for your frankness about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned then returning to academia and trying to be allowed to teach courses that were based around your... Your own well, book. That was a bit of an exaggeration. But whatever. So this, the book you're talking about, I yeah. suspect, is the '82 one that is about television and Visible film. Films, yes. And that I think inaugurates the idea of the glance yes. as a notion of how people watch yes. TV. Have I got that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. It was an observation, and it became something called glance theory. <laughs> <laughs> so there you are. You know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think kind of the kind of dis the notion of dispersed attention to a smaller screen, and a screen which is watched in a room where there's other activities is still one that holds, mm. you know, even more so with computers involved now, mm -hmm. and and mobile devices. You know, um, the, but however, the capacity for people to ignore their surroundings when they have a mobile device is probably greater than I'd have thought. Well, I think. At a purely experiential mm. level, the sense of involvement in the small screen mm. is greater than in the case of television in many instances mm. because you have to focus really hard on to see what the fuck is going on <laughs> and hear what's going on. And you, it's it, in that sense, it's rather like being in the dark, but it's a self-manifested darkness. But the, I think that's probably a, a temporary phenomenon that. Um, 
as tablets get bigger and lighter, mm. um, I think that's that's going to be less so we'll the case. You're, yeah. you're, you're moving to tablets now actually being um, as big as small television screens and much sharper definition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that probably is a, a temporary thing. But, uh, Rather like that noise that we used to get when dialing actually, up a modem. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's also to do with sound, which I've always said, is, you know, it's the thing that some people have noticed in, in invisible fictions. Mm -hmm. But I say, well, television's all about sound. Because actually, when you're concentrating on that small screen, you're actually physically blocking out the ambient noises of your space with your headphones. Yeah. Indeed, probably some, you know, most people, your sound is leaking out into other people's ambient space, which is not so nice. <laughs> so it's, it's reproducing a certain aspect of that kind of con intensity um, mm -hmm. that you get with cinema, but, but, but not through gaze, but audio gaze, as it were, audio mm. exclusion. Now, this re-entry into academia, is it eventually brokered in part by having all this production experience plus this theoretical armature and publication record? Yeah, had, had, it was really hard. It got, it's got easier to say, you know, for, for people who've been involved with production to get some kind of a foothold. But um, it still is. It's a, it's a weird culture, academia really is, you know, it makes television look like normal. Um, <laughs> I, I've just, just heard stories, somebody who went for a senior lectureship at a, at a university, um, who, somebody who, who's had huge production experience, and I know because she's worked with us part-time, is a, is a fantastic teacher. They wouldn't give her a senior lectureship. They wouldn't give her a senior lectureship because she didn't have a PhD. Mm. And that is really box-ticking, and that's how mm. to kind of lose people. They wouldn't even, I don't think, offer her, um, you know, time off to get this talismatic PhD. I, I wouldn't, you know, why bloody hell we insist on PhDs in academia? Yeah. You know, spend your own money for three years, lose all your friends, get completely depressed as your ticket to enter what? A low-paid, high-stress job. It, the offer is not compelling. <laughs> sure. Kathy Johnson's doing this wonderful stuff at the moment about academic self-exploitation and exploitation uh -huh. uh, how much um, work there is, uh, you know, how, how work demands are infinite. And the Times Higher also did a wonderful um, survey. Of the this is the stuff. Times Higher Education Times, it's magazine has, owned by Uncle Rupert. It's not anymore owned by Uncle it? Rupert. No, no, no. It's, if, if, it, if it were open, owned by media conglomerate, it might have some sense of journey. This is something that wouldn't know um, the story if it fitted on the bum, basically. <laughs> um, but it does, Galloway, it does, um, it does do these surveys, it, it crunches yeah. numbers. And it did a big survey of, of job satisfaction in oh. academia. And the gulf between academics and administrative staff is quite extraordinary. But, So their survey is about um, people's job satisfaction. Now, you'd be surprised, 70% of administrative staff have faith and rate their academic leadership in the institutions. It's less, it's 48% of 
And that gov, I think, says it all about what our system is like just now in the UK. So who does own the Times Higher Education? It owns itself. It got spun off. So um, going back, 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 as they say in baseball, terms, mm. we can conclude with this. I'd like to take you to when you got into thinking about theorising mm. the screen. And the first moment that I'm familiar with of that is mm. your book with Rosalind Coward, I think, Language and Materials. Yes. Have I got that right? That's right. 1977. Yeah, you must have been about four. I was, yeah. Uh, Two questions about the book. One, how did you get into it? And two, can you understand it? Um, got into it because both of us had studied English literature and it seemed to be a kind of formless um, and rather amorphous piece of self-indulgence I was taught. And we were in Cambridge and there was this man called Stephen Heath who was um, a very marginal figure back then and um, we were both taught by him. This was kind of attempt to make sense of what he was telling us right. uh, and what he was showing us was going on in in what was then intellectually very exciting period yeah. in France. You know, right. look at France and what, what went wrong. Yeah. Well, I, I think what went wrong is they never actually kind of the intellectual class never made a digital transition no. because the universities have got no digital infrastructure. They're falling apart, aren't they? You, academics don't have an office, so they don't have a computer. They don't have, you know, they don't, most of them don't have any central email service and things like that. It's it's chaos out there. They're, they're cut off. Yeah. So this is interesting. So he is a broker in the sense of that book, which I think yeah. I, I yeah. think is a terrific book. By the way, do you understand it when you look back at it, or have you looked back? Um, I haven't looked back at it. To be honest, I mean some of it more than some more than others. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the stuff to do with Lacan, Kristeva is really mm, probably not right, is it? Um, uh, other stuff, yes, you know, it is. It, it's um, it still worked last time I looked at it. It is a very old text, so. but you were trying. There have been better ones since. But you were trying to do something really distinctive. Yeah, you did something. It was all, there was also there's also quite a lot of uh, rather futile argument with 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 classical Marxism there, which which you wouldn't want around nowadays, um, because you know we've all got out of base and superstructure as a way of understanding mm. how um, society works. But it was uh, it was a dominant model back then. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we've sort of I've left out so far that I'd love to finish with, and we're moving around chronologically, but why not? Is some of your scholarly writing, and you've done mm -hmm. popular inverted commas writing as well, since you returned to academia. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a big fan of your uh, book on, you got a book on TV from 2007, I think. Yes, that would be called um, um, Seeing Things, is that? Or is, it, or is it the little one, little essays, TV FAQ? It's TV Frequently Asked Questions. That's right, yes. yes. I'm, I'm really not many people that. know that, as they say. It was, not a, it was not the success it was meant to be, oh, that really? book. Oh, yeah. well, 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 you know, you'll see sales <laughs> skyrocket after this. Well, well, absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Could you just give us a quick run-through of the stuff you've done on a scholarly basis since your return to the serried ranks of the genteel 
I did a book called um, Seeing Things in 2000, um, which is a sort of looks at the evolution of television, if you like, and mm -hmm. proposes a, um, a kind of um, methodology for understanding it. And it looks in particular at um, a lot of kind of aesthetico-structural things, like that scheduling, um, commissioning, and so on. It looks at those issues. Um, then TVFAQ, which was a series of very short essays. It was an attempt to do a website in the form of a book. So it's a lot of interlink <laughs> essays that are meant to interlink and so on. Mm. Um, some of you know, there's some nice little things like what's a precinct drama done in done in one page is quite useful. Um, so you know, some of them work. Um, and then I did documentary um, witness and self revelation in about 2012 which is, as I say, a book about um, documentaries, human process, and again, looking at the way that technology is used mm. in, in that, as well as kind of um, discussing things like slow film and so on. Um, so it's, uh, that's, that's the main things. I've been involved very much with um, working with television archives in various ways. Big project that I'm involved with called EU Screen, which is putting European TV heritage online for everybody. I've been running for some time now. I chair something called British Universities Film and Video Council, BUFVC, which had a better name, which has a wonderful product called Box of Broadcasts, which a lot of universities in the UK use, which basically is a giant TiVo in the cloud. Um, if any one person asks for something to be recorded and stored, there it is, and it's for everybody to use, and it'll be there forever. Wow, that's yeah. fantastic. And you can take clips, and nowadays you can certainly subtitles as well so you can search content through subtitles and it's a really lovely tool. Wow well John I, I, I want to thank you very much for being well, so generous with your time you've welcome. had an extraordinary career which is becoming even more extraordinary apologies 20 years in the US makes you <laughs> hyperbolize in this manner. It certainly does. <laughs> no but truly uh, these are remarkable achievements and I've read most of the books John's referred to and they're great uh, they're very important uh, contributions in a, in a variety of ways, a couple of them I've taught with, and the fact that you've had this very fascinating movement between uh, production and analysis, although they're not completely separate, I think is great, and the fact that the work you're doing now manages to bring a lot of this together mm. is really a striking achievement, so many, many thanks. Oh, oh sorry about the